The Mayday Murders is copyright 2005 by Scott Wittenberg. To learn more about this and other novels by the author, please visit scottwittenberg.com. Chapter 15 It was around 5.30 Monday afternoon when the telephone rang in Sam Middleton's office. Praying it wasn't McNary again, he picked up the phone. Sam Middleton, I'm glad I caught you before you split, Roger Hackstrom said. How soon can you come down to the station? I was just getting ready to call today. What's up? Your presence is being requested here. Pronto, in fact. Sam was stunned. Did I hear you say what I think I heard you say? You heard me right, buddy. Hold on a second. Sam could hear someone speaking in the background. Chief Thompson says he hopes there's no hard feelings, Roger said. Roger, what in the fuck is going on? Sam demanded, his sense of humor waning. The detective laughed. We hit pay dirt, man. That's what's going on. You caught the murderer? Sam asked incredulously. No, but we now sure as fuck know who he is without a doubt. Listen, get your ass down here and I'll tell you all about it. Lowering his voice to a near whisper, he added, The chief knows everything. Okay, I'll be there in ten minutes. Sam hated suspense, and Roger knew it. Swearing under his breath, he quickly put his papers in order and left the office. When he arrived at the police station, Sam noticed that nearly every police cruiser was parked outside, prompting him to sense that whatever was going on was a big deal. He parked the Cherokee and entered the station, feeling the electricity of activity the moment he stepped up to the desk sergeant. Go on in, Mark O'Brien said, obviously expecting him. Roger Hackstrom and the chief were standing outside Thompson's office as Roger spotted him and gestured Sam over. Hi, Rog. Chief. Hello, Sam, Thompson said, extending his hand. I'm glad you could make it. Sam shook the black man's hand and glanced over at Roger imploringly. Come on in, the chief said, holding his office door open. Thanks. Roger showed him a chair across from Thompson's desk, and Sam sat down. You like some coffee? Roger asked, stepping over to the coffee machine. Yeah, thanks. Chief Thompson sat down at the desk and waited until everyone had his coffee before speaking. I'm going to be up front with you, Sam. Lieutenant Hackstrom has informed me that you've already been, shall we say, enlightened on the Bradley murder case, so I don't feel any need to go over the background information. Therefore, we'll skip directly to the business at hand. Sam felt like a school kid being lectured as he sat across the desk from the chief of police. He had never particularly liked Frank Thompson, but had to admit that he respected the man. He was scathingly blunt and had that kind of authoritarian demeanor that demanded one's attention whenever caught in his presence. Hackstrom tells me you have a fairly extensive background in photography, Thompson continued. Sam nodded. Yeah, I guess you could say that. Photography was my original career choice until I learned that newspaper reporting paid better, he replied sarcastically. Chief Thompson held up a transparent plastic bag with a label marked evidence stuck to it. Then perhaps you could tell me what you make of this. He handed the plastic bag over to Sam. Inside the bag, he saw a blank Polaroid print. David Bradley's housekeeper found that print this morning in Tommy Bradley's bedroom, the chief explained. It had apparently fallen and wedged itself inside one of Tommy's toys and out of plain view. At any rate, Hackstrom's men somehow missed this during their investigation. But fortunately for us, the Bradley's housekeeper's eyesight is still in good working order, he added with a sardonic glance towards Roger. Sam eyed the Polaroid. Do you think the murderer dropped this? Thompson grinned. We know the murderer dropped it. In fact, 
we now know who the murderer is. Again, thanks to the Bradley's housekeeper. Roger Hackstrom took over from there. Mary Willis, the housekeeper, wisely refrained from touching the print and immediately called Dave Bradley to tell him what she'd found. Dave then called me, and I went over to check it out. And lo and behold, we dusted for prints and actually got some. Our hunch was right, Sam. We compared them against Stanley Jenkins' prints, and they're a match. Jesus! Sam exclaimed. So Stanley really is Marsh's murderer? Roger nodded. Yep. We finally have the hard evidence we need to charge him. But how did you get Stanley Jenkins' fingerprints? Sam asked. He's got a police record, remember? The Epson, Indiana PD had mugged and fingerprinted him when he was booked on the arson charge at the college. We just received his mug sheet from them earlier today. Wow, it's still hard to believe, Thompson declared. You won't think it's unbelievable when you've heard what we've got on this guy so far, Sam. I'll let Haxtrom fill you in on that when we get through here. But first of all, I want you to tell me exactly what you see in that evidence bag. And please keep it in the bag, by the way. Roger added, Howard Dixon has already looked the print over, and all he could tell us was that it was a dud Polaroid. We're hoping you can come up with a little more than that. Sam winked at Roger as he pictured old Howard Dixon, the semi-retired police photographer, who is 80 years old if he was a day, trying to make sense of an instant photograph, whose very existence he probably resented in the first place. There were certain limitations to belonging to the old school photography, Sam felt, which Howard doubtlessly belonged to. Howard still used an old Grayflex camera at crime scenes, the same one he'd owned since the Great Depression. I'll see what I can do, Sam said as he brought the bagged photograph closer to his eyes to examine it. At first glance, the Polaroid indeed appeared to be a dud, as Howard Dixon had reported. The image was basically all white and muddy gray near the bottom of the square image frame where the rollers hadn't evenly distributed the developer as the print passed through them. It was a common occurrence with instant cameras. The rollers got old with age and eventually failed to compress the developer packet enough to disperse the processing chemicals evenly throughout the exposed latent image on the print. The result was a virtually white and or unevenly developed print with traces of the grayish colored developer fluid appearing near the bottom under the transparent mylar covering. Have you got a magnifying glass handy? Sam asked Chief Thompson. Thompson opened one of his desk drawers, brought out a magnifying glass, and handed it over to Sam. Sam held the bagged print up closer to the light and peered through the glass. The first thing he noticed was a series of long, thin scratch marks that extended vertically across the mylar print window, no doubt caused by tiny burrs in the metal pinch rollers of the camera. Then he noticed a small dark area in the upper left-hand corner of the image. He looked closer. The dark area was actually the partial image of a ceiling light fixture, a very unique light fixture. The edge of white that merged with the image was fuzzy. Perhaps out of focus would be a more appropriate term. Sam felt a sudden cold chill as the implications behind the poorly executed Polaroid print raced through his mind. Sam took the magnifying glass away and stared intently at Chief Frank Thompson. This isn't a dud, Chief, he declared. It's an actual exposed photograph taken in Marsha Bradley's kitchen. The chief's eyes widened. What? Here, take a look for yourself. The chief walked around the desk. Sam handed him the magnifying glass and pointed at the faint dark area of the photo. See this dark area, chief? If you look at it under the glass, you can just make out the wrought iron trim of the overhead light fixture in Marsha Bradley's kitchen. You can even see where the frosted glass in the housing butts up against it if you look closely enough. The chief looked through the glass a moment and let out a gasp. I'll be damned. 
It is a light fixture, no doubt about that. But how do you know it's the one in Marsha Bradley's kitchen? I've been in the Bradley house, and I've seen it in there. That's how. It's pretty damn unique, which is probably why I recall it. Thompson eyed Sam approvingly. Quite a pension for detail, Sam. Sam shrugged. A photographer has to be observant. Let me see, Roger said. Thompson handed him the print and magnifying glass. That does look like the kitchen light fixture, no doubt about it. But what's all this white shit in the rest of the picture? That white shit is most likely the photographer who took the picture, Rog, Sam stated. Roger stared at his friend. What do you mean? I like to hear this too, Thompson said. Sam said, The white area is actually a blown-out image of something, and my guess is that the photographer, who we now know as Stanley Jenkins, was standing directly in front of the camera when it went off. There's a fuzzy outline along the image of the ceiling light fixture. That's an out-of-focus portion of Stanley's body, which is totally overexposed due to the fact that he was bathed in light from the camera's flash. This would make him appear washed out in white in the photo. The tiny image of the ceiling light, however, is an imperfect focus, because the lens of the camera was preset for infinity, or at least a distance of 15 feet or so. I'm confused, Sam, the chief said. What makes you so sure that Stanley Jenkins was standing in front of the camera when it went off? Couldn't it have been something else, or someone else? It's possible, of course, but it's not in the odds. I have a theory, Chief. That's why I'm pretty sure it's Stanley in the foreground. Let's hear it. I'm quite familiar with the kind of Polaroid camera that took this shot. It's an older model that they no longer make. I own one myself. It is, in fact, the only model that uses this particular format of film. They do still manufacture the film, by the way. Artists often use this old film format because the emulsion can be manipulated. Anyway, this model of camera can be used with an optional self-timer. You know, so you can get into your own pictures if you can run fast enough to get in the scene before the shutter goes off. We now know that this shot was taken in Marsha Bradley's kitchen, but what we don't know is why. My theory is that Stanley wanted to take a shot of Marsha Bradley while he was in the act of raping her. Otherwise, why else would he take a picture in the kitchen? Marsha's body was found in the living room, and we can more or less assume that the wacko probably took some aftershots, just as he had with Sarah Hunt up in New York. But what about taking some during pictures, just for the hell of it? Marsha was raped in the kitchen against the counter. You've already determined that. So Stanley decides he wants a shot or two of himself in the act. So what he does is force Marsha to wait helplessly near the kitchen counter while he rigs up his Polaroid camera on a tripod and aims it at her. Then after everything is composed and in focus, Stanley engages a self-timer button, presses the shutter release button, then runs over and does whatever his sick mind desires to poor Marsha. The camera fires and he has his shot. But when he took this particular shot, he forgot to engage the self-timer before pressing the shutter release button. In fact, if memory serves, this is most likely the first shot he took. Because once you flip the self-timer button on, it remains on until you flip it off. So once Stanley got everything all set up, he stood in front of the camera, pressed the shutter release button, and click. He's got a beautifully blown out, out of focus shot of himself still standing there in the foreground. And in the corner of the shot is the only other element not blocked out by Stanley's blown out, out of focus body the crisply rendered light fixture mounted on a white ceiling. Thompson scratched his head. Not a bad theory. Not bad at all. It may also explain why he chose the kitchen to commit the crime, Sam said. The kitchen is the only large room in the Bradley house that faces the hillside out back, 
no one could see the flash going off from the front of the house. Furthermore, Stanley must have discovered that the perspective afforded by shooting through the doorway into the kitchen from the living room was perfect for his artistic intent. Good point, Sam, Roger said. All of the bedrooms upstairs have windows facing the cul-de-sac, not to mention that they were covered by sheer curtains, if I remember correctly. What about the living room? Thompson asked. We're assuming that he photographed Marsh's body after he strangled her, and those windows faced the front of the house as well. Roger said, Yeah, but they were covered by heavy drapes, which were drawn the night of the murder. You know, another thought just occurred to me. We now know that Stanley went back into Tommy's bedroom after he murdered Marcia, since his print was found there. The question that suddenly comes to mind is, why? Excuse me for asking, but what difference does any of this make? Sam asked. You already know that Stanley did it, so why the big mystery about this Polaroid? Thompson replied, let me explain something about police procedure, Sam. Yes, we now know that Stanley committed the murder, or murders, I should say, but we still have to find the son of a bitch and build a case against him. In order to do this, we've got to investigate everything we have on hand to establish, among other things, motive and opportunity, as well as try to get an idea where he might have gone from here. This Polaroid is important to the case because we now know, thanks to your expertise, that he owns a particular model of Polaroid camera that uses what I assume would be a relatively uncommon type of film. It surely must be uncommon if they no longer make the camera that uses it. We can now attempt to trace where he bought this film for the camera by checking out any stores that carry that particular type of film and show Stanley's picture to the store employees in the process. Maybe someone will remember his face. This information could lead to his whereabouts prior to and possibly after the crime was committed. At least we have something to go on now. The chief took a sip of his coffee and added, It's been nearly a month since Marsha Bradley's murder. Jenkins could be anywhere now. Hell, Timbuktu for all we know. And he's already proven to us that he knows how to lay low. He somehow managed to disappear completely out of sight for 15 years, for Christ's sakes. We now have an APB out on him, but that's not going to be enough. In order to nail the bastard, we're going to have to be smarter than him. Piece the puzzle together and determine what his next move is going to be. This fucker is crafty, sly as a fox, and he's going to slip away from us for good if we don't start getting a handle on what in the hell he's up to here. Are you beginning to catch my drift? Sam nodded. Again, he was starkly reminded of the fact that he was a journalist and not a cop. What about the press? Thompson smiled. I was wondering when you were going to ask that. That's the other reason why I invited you here. Chief Thompson pulled out a document from a manila file holder on the desk and handed it to Sam. This is a computer-enhanced photo composite of what Stanley Jenkins may look like now. Write a follow-up story and put this photo alongside it, Sam. We'd like to see it in the paper ASAP. Detective Hagstrom will tell you what you can and cannot divulge in the article. There's obviously a few things we'd like to keep to ourselves for now, as you can probably imagine. Sam looked at the document. It was impressive, effectively depicting what Stanley Jenkins might look like today, after having aged twenty or so years. In the top photo, he was shown with long dark hair, glasses, and a beard. In the bottom photo, short hair, no glasses, and clean-shaven. Sam said, I assume you've cleared all this up with McNary? Yes, I have. I told him to give you carte blanche, but I'm trusting you not to include whatever Lieutenant Hagstrom orders you to omit. 
Fair enough, Sam said. He turned to Roger. What about New York? Have you talked with Mancuso about these latest developments? Roger nodded. I filled him in. We're also in the process of issuing a press release to the AP. This is pretty big, Sam, Thompson declared. There's a serial killer loose who we know so far has committed two murders in two different states within as many weeks. That pretty much makes this more than just a local problem. And believe it or not, we want media exposure on these cases. It may make Jenkins think twice before striking again any time soon, and buy us some time to nail him in the meantime. The chief glanced at the wall clock, then looked over at Detective Roger Hagstrom. I've got to go out and brief those men now. Why don't you go over the press release with Sam, so we can get cracking on this thing? Okay, Chief. Thompson shook Sam's hand. Thanks, Sam. Keep this man in line, okay? He's a damn good detective when he's not drowning himself in a bottle of scotch. Sam saw Roger scowl at the corner of his eye. Don't worry about Roger, Chief. He's got things under control. Thompson grunted, then turned and left the office. He's a bigger drunk than I am, Roger quipped as he warmed up his coffee. Let's go to my office where we can smoke. Sam followed Roger Hackstrom to his office. The two lit up cigarettes and sat down at the desk. Damn, I'm beat, Roger complained. I got a grand total three-hour sleep last night, and that's the most I've had in as many days. Life's a bitch, eh? But at least you're getting somewhere on this case. Hackstrom nodded. True. And when it's finally over, I'm going on the biggest drunk you can imagine. I've seen your drunks, Rog, and the scary thing is... I can't imagine. This one may surprise even your sorry ass. The detective took a drag and gulped his coffee while slumping back in the chair. At any rate, here's the scoop. I was actually able to contact Stanley's mother again earlier today, saving me a trip to Cincinnati, thank God, and leaned on her big time before she could start trying to snow job me again like she had during our last conversation. I promptly informed her that withholding information in a murder investigation could get her in serious trouble. She, of course, was taken aback by the word murder and asked me if Stanley was in some kind of trouble. I told her that he could be, and her attitude changed dramatically. She mumbled something like, Money is the root of all evil, and I asked her what she meant by that. She told me that at one time Stanley was loaded and that all that money probably went to his head. Apparently, when his father died, Stanley cashed in on a small fortune as a result of Mr. Jenkins' generous life insurance policy. This is not long after Stanley had been released from the state hospital. Then, to put it simply, Stanley took the money and ran, left home. He didn't tell his mother where he was going, only he was finally going to get himself straightened out, and I quote. For months, his mother never heard a word from Stanley, until nearly a year later, that is, as I told you before. When she received the postcard from Vegas, Sam said. Not a postcard after all, but a letter. She had lied to me before about that. It was a letter that came with a cashier's check for $25,000 made out to Stanley's mother. She read the letter to me over the phone. It said something like, Here's a little money to help you out, Mom. I struck it big on the tables, and I'm heading to L.A. to spend it. Don't worry about me. I'm fine. But I'll be even better once I put this money to good use. Hmm. I wonder what she meant by putting this money to good use, Sam said. Roger replied, Hell if I know. Maybe he planned on investing it in the stock market, or the drug market, which wouldn't surprise me. At any rate, we're going to do some nosing around in Vegas and L.A. to see what we can find out. Surely someone must have come in contact with Stanley at one time or another while he was living in either city. We're also working on tracking down Cindy Fuller to see if she could enlighten us on Stanley's possible whereabouts. Who knows? 
maybe took another stab at winning her heart since his release from the nuthouse, after conceding that setting her dorm on fire hadn't been a happening way to create a strong and lasting relationship. We're dealing with a loony here, buddy, and you gotta go a little crazy yourself in order to catch a crazy. His friend's statement suddenly registered in Sam's mind as he realized what he was implying here, that Stanley Jenkins is a certified nutcase and totally unpredictable. Without reason, logic, and rationale on your side, you've got to use alternative means in order to make some kind of educated guess at what was on this demented killer's mind. Those means would be to attempt and try to think like an insane person would think, given his known profile. No small order, indeed, Sam thought. And if nothing else, it certainly left one with chilling possibilities of what may happen next. What about the state hospital, Sam said. Couldn't you get some help from the doctors there? Maybe get an idea of what was on Stanley's mind while he was receiving treatment? Roger shook his head slowly from side to side. Already tried that route. No luck. Patient confidentiality has put a quick end to that possibility before it ever got started. You're kidding. You mean they won't tell you anything, even though it's all but a fact that Stanley Jenkins is a fucking murderer? I thought you could force doctors to release their records when it involves a murder case. That's not enough to do it. Only when a patient suspect has knowingly threatened to murder someone does patient confidentiality go out the door. And that's not the case we have here. It's a bitch, I know, but it's the fucking law. Sam couldn't believe what he was hearing. How can a murder suspect be protected by the law when it was more than apparent that he had murdered someone, for Christ's sakes? It made absolutely no sense at all, especially considering that the murder was still at large and most likely would kill again. The information that one of Stanley's former doctors could offer may well mean the difference between life and death for some innocent, law-abiding person. Sam said, and they call that justice? There you go. Well, what about Tommy Bradley, then? Have you shown the computer composite of Stanley to him yet? Sam wanted to know. Glad you asked, before you give yourself a coronary. The kid is apparently in much better shape now, and we've cleared the way to show him the composite and interview him tomorrow morning. That could well ice this whole thing if he positively IDs Stanley Jenkins. That's good news, at least. But even if you get a positive ID and confirm the murderer, it's not going to help you catch the son of a bitch. Which reminds me, what's the dope for the press release? I want to get started on that thing and get Stanley's mug out for the world to see so we can nail him. Roger thumbed through some of the papers on his desk and handed Sam a document. Here's the official document. As you can see, we've pretty much let the cat out of the bag here. You can embellish it to some degree, of course. The only thing the Chief's really concerned about is the details of the pending investigation. You now know the specifics, Sam, so be sure not to put anything in that might tip the creep off. That's all. Sam looked over the press release and nodded. Don't worry. I'm actually impressed. This is surprisingly honest and straightforward for a change. Finally, the public can be adequately informed of what is really happening in this town. I thought you'd approve. Sam stood up. I better get moving. I think I'll stop by the office and pick up all the shit I need and take it home. We still can't get this out until tomorrow evening's paper anyway. As excited as I am about writing this article, it would figure that I'm going to have to do it while I'm dead beat. Roger Hackstrom grinned. I don't suppose Shelley Hatcher has anything to do with that. Let's just say she hasn't helped any, Sam replied as he turned to leave. You're one lucky son of a bitch. Take care, buddy. You too, Sam said as he went out the door. He stopped by the Observer and collected all the files and documents pertaining to Marcia Bradley and Sarah Hunt's murder investigations.
Before leaving, he ran into the sports writer, Al Clarkson, and briefly told him what he had just learned at the police headquarters. Al's reaction, as expected, had been that of absolute shock. The sun was shining over the western foothills as Sam drove home. It was one of those spectacular late autumn sunsets, the sky bursting with radiant hues of yellow, orange, and magenta, gradually giving way to a deep shade of cold blue. He reached over and turned on the heater as he felt the chill of the crisp evening air and decided that tonight would be as good a time as any to break in the fireplace. He had been looking forward to firing it up ever since he had first laid eyes on it last spring. Sam pulled into his driveway and retrieved the mail before continuing on to the house. Once inside, he brewed a pot of coffee and ate a cold chicken sandwich. Afterwards, he went into the den to get a fire started and noticed the tiny light on the answering machine flickering. He played back the message. Hi, Sam. It's me. I thought you'd be home from work by now, but it looks like you're not. I just called to thank you for a wonderful weekend. I really had a great time. Hopefully, we can do it again sometime soon. I know you told me you needed some time to think things over, and I'm sorry to bother you like this, but I just couldn't help it. I miss you already. Oops, I shouldn't have said that, should I? Oh well, sorry about that. I'll go on before I make you mad. Feel free to call me if you happen to get the urge, okay? Otherwise, I'll try calling you later in the week. Love you, hon. Bye-bye. Sam couldn't help but smile to himself as he listened to Shelley Hatcher's message. It hadn't been twenty-four hours since she had left to go back to Ashland K.Y., and already she was pestering him. It was beginning to look like the girl was more hung up on him than he had ever imagined. He went over to the fireplace and finished stuffing in the kindling wood, then placed a few medium-sized logs on the grating. He struck a match, lit the crumpled newspapers, and watched as they caught fire and ignited the kindling. Once the fire was burning steadily, he went over to his desk, sat down, and turned on the computer. Shelley had ended up staying over Saturday, and that night proved to be every bit as wild and crazy as the night before had been. The next morning, or rather afternoon, he had awakened feeling not only severely hungover, but surprisingly at ease for a change. Shelley Hatcher, and his desire to be with her, had somehow prevailed over Anne and everything that went along with his former wife. For the first time since the divorce, he felt content, not so much because of what he had done with Shelley Hatcher this weekend, but more of the fact that he had actually done it in the first place. There was a difference. In a nutshell, he at last felt free. Anne had her life, he had his. Love was no longer a pain, or even an issue. It had become something that had once existed, but no longer existed. After breakfast, he and Shelley decided to go for a drive in the state forest. They had parked the jeep and taken a long walk, hand in hand. A few kisses now and then, but no sex. Fun without sex. Something new in his life since the divorce. Then they had driven back to the house, and Sam had pulled Shelley's car out of the mud, told her what an excellent weekend it had been, then, in the same breath, told her that he needed some time to think things over. She seemed to understand what he was telling her, and kissed him before climbing into her car and heading back to Kentucky. When Sam had gone to bed later that night, he hadn't been able to get to sleep. He started thinking about Anne and Amy, and realized that although he may have fallen out of love with his ex-wife, he still loved the both of them in a way that simply couldn't be labeled, and he knew that he would always love them in that special way. Then he had begun thinking of how empty and meaningless his life would be if something bad had ever happened to the most important girls in his life, just as he had so many times before. He realized that he would always care for them, and that he'd never quit worrying about them. 
and ever since Marcia Bradley had been murdered, he had acquired an uneasiness that he knew would never go away until Stanley Jenkins was caught and put away. Then his thoughts had drifted to Shelley Hatcher, and how she was like a breath of fresh air amidst all the malevolence going on. When he was with Shelley, the world suddenly seemed to stop turning. All the bad went away, and everything was good again. Anne became a distant memory. The past evaporated, and the future was within his grasp. Then he'd think about the murderer again. The murderer continued prevailing throughout it all. Stanley Jenkins had to be stopped. Sam had finally fallen asleep around 3.30 in the morning. Then he'd had a nightmare. In the nightmare, he was lying on the beach with Shelley Hatcher. They were alone on the beach, stark naked, making love. Suddenly he'd heard a telephone ring. He'd opened his eyes and reached for the phone lying beside him on the sand. It was the police calling. They told him that Anne and Amy had been found in their home, raped and strangled to death. He'd started crying and turned to Shelley to tell her what had happened. She had started laughing hideously. Sam's eyes remained focused on the computer screen. This murderer has got to be stopped. He opened up MS Word for Mac and began typing. Suspect sought in Bradley murder. For more information about the Mayday murders and other books by the author, please visit scottwittenberg.com. Thanks for listening.